Hello and welcome to the Of Interest podcast. I'm Gareth Vaughan from interest.co.nz. In a recent episode, I spoke with Kim Martin, the Director of New Zealand Debt Management, which is the Treasury unit responsible for managing the government's debt. In that episode, we walked through how the government borrows and repays debt. In this episode, we're going to focus on government debt again, but from a different perspective. We're going to look at how overseas investors and sovereign debt markets more broadly look at New Zealand government debt. To do this, I'm joined by Martin Wetton. Martin is a Sydney-based interest rate strategist. Hi, Martin, and welcome to the Of Interest podcast, and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Gareth. Good morning. Kia ora to all the uh, listeners. Just to kick us off, it would be quite good maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and, and what, what you do. Sure. Uh, so I'm, as you said, an interest rate strategist, and I'm based in Sydney. I look at uh, the Australian and New Zealand debt markets, bonds, swaps, LGFA for New Zealand. I look at it in the context of their own markets, as well as how they fit into the global uh, debt uh, markets more broadly, what in- investors are doing with, with debt for the both, uh, both the countries, what the supply side looks like, and try to contextualise that, find ideas for people to trade, and I'm talking here in the wholesale market, uh, and, and look at what opportunities there are. Okay. So in the discussion we had with Kim Martin, she mentioned that about 60% of New Zealand government bonds are currently held by offshore investors. So these are investors who presumably will buy bonds, um, sovereign bonds from a range of, of different countries, perhaps, certainly with a focus in, in debt markets, um, bonds, etc. What do you think are particular attractions of New Zealand government debt to these types of investors? Great question. Well, firstly, uh, there is a very broad ownership of New Zealand government debt by international investors. And it's one that I think has lifted over recent years from just under 50% to the levels we have now. I think the reasons for that are both cyclical and structural. The cyclical part was that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand was one of the first central banks to start hiking rates. And so that lifted bond yields, it made the market more attractive for international investors. Now, uh, yield is what attracts a lot of investors and obviously higher yield, the highest yield structure in the G10, which is all the sort of G10 currencies of which New Zealand fits in, was one of those stories. The other part of that cyclical story was that New Zealand was included in a fairly exclusive club called the World Government Bond Index, or WIGBY as the acronym for short. Now, that happened last year, and the the, uh, ascension to that index took around six months. It was well known, it was well flagged, and it was an obvious one because that um, came about due to the size of the New Zealand government bond market. So that also helped the, the inclusion of it, it helped foreign buyers uh, come to the market. The other part is things like credibility and credit rating. So the credibility part is really important. That comes to probably two institutions or or, or possibly three, government, obviously, and and its credit rating. 
the NZDM, Kim Martin's group, which is tasked with the borrowing on behalf of the Crown. And the third is really uh, just the structural nature of the market, you know, how well it's traded, how liquid it is. And New Zealand fits all the categories of those developed markets. And so that became a more structural story. Credit rating is very high. Uh, you know, sits in the top tier of, of borrowers around the world. It's a reliable borrower. And those things help the investors, whether they are sovereign wealth funds, central banks, or, or global pension funds who are allocating money, they choose where they go to. And I think historically, both Australia and New Zealand were countries where Interest rates were typically a little bit higher than other countries, and I'm talking over a 30 or 40 year period here. And because of that, you, you typically got a lot of international interest in our markets. And I'm not joining them together for any particular reason other than it was a structural thing that we had higher interest rates, but it attracted capital to our countries where we need that. We needed, historically, we needed that capital to fund ourselves. Yeah, and um, obviously there, there are some pretty key factors that you have outlined there that, that are uh, what the investors look at when they're looking to New Zealand. I'm curious too, I mean, you know, obviously investors have a choice, so they can yes. choose where, where they place their money. So when they are weighing up New Zealand government bonds, Presumably there are a range of other countries that they look at and maybe they spread their money across, you know, several different um, sovereigns. Maybe they, some of them don't. <laughs> um, but, I mean, what are the other comparable countries we ought to consider and that they would weigh up when they're making their decisions? I mean, obviously you've noted Australia. It's our near neighbour. We do have yeah. a, lot, a lot in common with Australia. So that, uh, presumably that is one. But what would be the other ones? Yeah, and, and just because investors are interested in Australia doesn't make them interested in New Zealand and vice versa. I think that's probably uh, something that is worth noting. What, what investors look at is uh, a famous quote from a guy called Walter Riston. Walter Riston was the head of Citigroup uh, or Citibank back in the 70s and 80s when they expanded around the world. And they'll look at different markets and he said, money goes where it's welcome and it stays where it's well treated. If you're an investor in the New Zealand market, I think you're well treated. You're, uh, you're safe with your, with your investments in the government bond debt market. Um, insofar as the credit rating stayed high, uh, you know, you've never had any issues with, with the borrower or, um, or the way the market trades. When they're looking at where they put their money, if you use a notional sum of $100, the bulk of what you're going to buy is going to be the US government bond market. It's the biggest market in the world. So as a percentage of your holdings, it's probably going to make up somewhere like 40 to 50%. But yields might be low. Uh, they might be um, uh, you know, unattractive relative to other countries. So then you look for how do you augment your portfolio? And you'll look at the European debt market, Japan, then you'll look at what we call the dollar block. Now, the treasuries or US governments are in that, but we would, I would classify dollar block outside of treasuries as being Australia, New Zealand, and Canada. 
not just because of historical ties, Commonwealth, anything like that. They're dollar-based. They have a rule of law that works. And they've got markets that have fairly similar macro drivers and environments. And that usually is a starting point for the way you invest. And you, you sort of, you go back to that Riston quote, and you know that in all those three countries, things work. Uh, outside of that, you might invest in markets like uh, Indonesia or, or um, parts of the Middle East, Eastern Europe and, and the Scandinavian countries. And they can make up a percentage of your portfolio as well. And that's just using a notional amount of money. But there will be opportunistic times when, say, New Zealand has higher yields than other countries. And the market's view is, well, that's you know, too high and they'll allocate more than their usual amount of money towards that. So if, you're, if your allocation to New Zealand is 1% of your portfolio, you might make that 3% of your portfolio because the opportunity is, uh, is particularly attractive. You mentioned earlier that uh, I think New Zealand has the, the highest yield structure in the G10. One of the things yeah. I wanted to ask you about was that it is said that there's a New Zealand premium on government bonds here. Um, so I'm just wondering if this is indeed the case. It's a specific New Zealand-related issue. You talked about higher interest rates than in many other parts of the world, in New Zealand and Australia or, or in other comparable countries. So I guess that is a key factor. Um, it, it, but, but I'd be really interested to hear a bit more on that, like why that premium is there. Sure. Um, term premium and credit premiums are, are two concepts that you can uh, look at in terms of this. So term premium is the amount that you pay extra to, uh, to borrow money over a longer period of time. So it might be that you're a less good issuer, so a lower credit rating. And so the longer you're borrowing money for as a sovereign, you pay that little bit more relative to somewhere else like treasuries. Now, a practical way of explaining that, if you're borrowing five-year money and it's say it's New Zealand and the US, and you've got similar policy rates, if New Zealand is trading 20 basis points or 0.2% over the US Treasury for the five year, but 100 over for the 30, then your term premium is around 80 basis points for that for the length of those uh, bonds. And you can see that the longer out you go on the yield curve, New Zealand pays that little bit more relative to the US. So that's that's your term premium. And then you can have your credit premium, uh, which will uh, also relate to, I guess, um, what your credit rating is relative to others. And that will be a similar kind of metric, but it will depend on um, how much debt you're issuing. The other part is the liquidity premium. Now, clearly, the US Treasury market is the biggest, baddest market out there. Uh, you can do all sorts of size in that market all day, every day, although there are clearly periods in recent years where liquidity has been poor. In the New Zealand market, you have fewer players, so that's fewer investors, fewer banks who 
underwrite the debt or, or um, manage the debt sales, and I guess fewer global participants. So liquidity might be that everyone sees the attraction in New Zealand, so they all buy, and then that attraction disappears and they want to reduce their holdings and so it can be a little bit one-sided. That typically happens in, in all markets, but I guess more so in markets like Australia, New Zealand, um, probably some of the Scandinavian countries where the absolute level of debt and the amount of participants is actually lower than others. We're obviously sort of in a really strange period at the moment. I mean, if you, you know, looking, I'm, I'm sort of th thinking here of the last, you know, three or four years, obviously, the yeah. COVID-19 pandemic um, and the impact that that had. And, and now we've got a, a high inflation. So 2020, 2021, um, the world sort of shut down for a while. Um, and uh, obviously, interest rates were very, very low. And we had central banks, uh, including the Reserve Bank of New Zealand doing quantitative easing, buying up government mm -hmm. bonds, um, inflation low, now inflation's higher. Um, just curious, I mean, what are the key issues in the sovereign debt markets right now, especially in this part of the world? Yep, uh, I think the unwinding of QE is something that all central banks and their government borrowers need to think about and the impact that that has on the functioning of the market the liquidity of market, and then therefore what investors uh, have, as, have as their takeaways for, for how the market performs and functions. They have to think that they borrowed a lot of money in that period. And while their net borrowing may be uh, falling away over the coming years because the economy is clearly much stronger than it was in that COVID period, they've got their gross debt. So the total amount that they need to borrow and the difference between gross and net is, is you're looking at your, your debt maturities. So um, that the gross debt is still going to be fairly large for the next few years. So we, we describe that as the call on the market, the requirement of the market to buy the debt that the government has to issue. And I think those things together are some of the concerns the market has. In the back of their mind, I think both the issuers and governments together need to think about the sustainability of the debt that they've borrowed insofar as will that affect credit ratings. Now, credit ratings are one of these things that get a hard time from a lot of people. And there's always a finger pointing exercise at 2008, but I think the difference between sovereign credit ratings and things like the ratings of CDS, CDOs, uh, mortgage-backed securities are very different things. So th there is the credibility within sovereign ratings very much. Um, so they're, they're probably the main things to think about. And then you have micro issues around budgets and funding requirements. Uh, but also, I think it's worth mentioning because New Zealand pioneer on so many things was uh, a pioneer or, or was an early adopter of a green government bond. And while that was late last year, 
you know, you only, you've seen a handful of the major countries do it, but I think New Zealand doing that is doing that with an eye to the future where investors are simply going to require that a sovereign debt issuer has some sort of ESG program in mind for the debt that they're borrowing. You've touched on sovereign credit ratings there, and that kind of takes me on to one of my other questions, and and that is really how closely overseas investors look at, um, I guess, local economic, fiscal and political issues within the country they're investing in. And I mean, I assume that would probably vary between the investors. Mm -hmm. But one of the big issues or, or looming issues here at the moment is our current account deficit. So New Zealand's annual current account deficit last year was $33.8 billion, which is 8.9% of gross domestic product, the biggest since measurement began in 1988. And, and there have, has been some, some murmurings about credit ratings in relation to that. So a specific yep. piece of economic data like that, I mean, how big of a factor could that be for uh, investors in New Zealand government bonds? Uh, look, it is something that they will look at. And obviously, when that number came out recently, there was a bit of a shock to the market because there was the immediate response from S&P ratings that suggested that the, the rating could be under threat as a result. Now, a decision on that can take some time. And I think uh, if we just cool down for a moment and say New Zealand is in a very solid position, it's got a strong economy, uh, and it does have very low debt to GDP at, at the government level, then it's not something that people will lose a lot of sleep over. There are investors who simply have hard mandates around credit rating. But when you're starting at the top of the tree in ratings, you know, very... Um, very few people would not be able to buy New Zealand, I think. So that's that's not an issue if there was a downgrade. And what about other sort of key, I guess, um, economic, fiscal and political issues? I mean, you, you mentioned, I mean, obviously we've got the government's annual budget coming up soon. It's an election yeah. year. So typically governments will look to, you know, for a bit, a bit of a lolly scramble yeah, for voters. Yeah. yeah, in an election year, but we've got high inflation, so... I guess there's a balancing act that um, the finance minister will have to have to to um, to do there. So that would be one, I assume. Um, we, what else? I mean, obviously our MMP um, political system is probably pretty well known now. It's been around a long time, and we have had stable governments. Um, so what what else would be on, on the uh, on the uh, radar? Well, I guess uh, on your first point, it, it does matter that if a government's looking to throw a few uh, sweeteners out there and the Reserve Bank says, well, our mandate's inflation and that becomes very inflationary with the government spending that's going on and therefore interest rates go higher, bond investors can lose money as interest rates go higher. That would be something that would concern them. But there's a, there's a balance and to some degree that's already in the price or in the yield. Another thing I suppose would be what's the plan around three waters and uh, how much damage in the North Island from the recent storms is going to be paid for by the government, what percentage falls to LGFA, what percentage falls to central government, 
what does that damage bill look like? How is that going to be funded? And when you look at those things, an investor will take all of that into account with, as you said, a very political, politically stable backdrop and say, what's the supply side going to look like over the coming fiscal year? And if it goes from $30 billion to $45 billion, obviously you're going to have to find buyers for that extra $15 billion. Now, they'll, they'll be found one way or another, but you know, at what cost in yield? So it is a difficult situation for governments to manage these things. Uh, they've got a lot of balls in the air on this. But I do think ultimately investors look at New Zealand as a market where you know, they get their money back and uh, it's, a, it's a safe investment home for them. I just want to ask you about the um, secondary market and also what are known as the registered tender counterparties. We'll start with the registered yep. tender counterparties first. So New Zealand Debt Management has eight of these, and these are these are banks. So we've got ANZ, BNZ, Citigroup, Commonwealth Bank of Australia, of course, ASB's parents, Deutsche Bank, JP Morgan, UBS, and, and Westpac. So what role do they play, and how influential are they? They, they all have a very key role. Uh, they sit there in the market to participate in every tender on a Thursday. Uh, they take down the bonds from the New Zealand Debt Management Office, some for themselves, for the trading books, some for the liquidity books of their banks. So the uh, what are called HQLA, high quality liquid assets, the banks have to hold them. Some for the insurers, the pension funds for things like KiwiSaver. Some are distributed to central banks and sovereign wealth funds and pension funds around the world. It's it's quite a interesting thought to know that uh, at lunchtime today, as the as the debt management office sells those bonds, in the next couple of days they could be, end up in a Swedish pension fund or a Midwest uh, bank. So. Uh, you know, it's a great distribution system and the sales teams at those banks, whether they're local or offshore, they put them into the end buyers. They will have a role where they're speaking to their investors. There's some bonds coming today. Are you interested? You've got some bonds. You've got some cash. Uh, what are you thinking to do? And they distribute those bonds. You'll have faster money accounts, like a hedge fund who says, oh, there's an opportunity here because New Zealand bonds are quite cheap relative to the US or Australia, and they'll take a short-term view on the market. And then when they're out of those trades, they come back to a bank, it doesn't have to be the bank that they bought from, and they sell those bonds back, and that's what's called the secondary market. So they have a very important role. The second role they have is when there is a syndication. So that's when the NZDM looks to borrow a large amount, like the May 30s recently or the green bond, and they build a book. They say, we're going to issue this bond. We're going to issue somewhere between three and $4 billion. We need buyers. And your job as a bank is to go out and find those buyers for the NZDM. So you're funding the government in that sense. I mean, the banks aren't doing the funding themselves. It's their clients that do. So they have a really important role. 
And then for people like the NZDM, it's really important for them to understand what the investors are thinking. You know, they don't like long bonds. They don't like short bonds. They like the mid curve. They think the curve is too flat. They think that uh, US yields are more attractive. All that market information is compiled by banks, given back to investors and the, and the borrower, the DM. And that helps with decisions around the process of borrowing each month or each week. Just in terms of the secondary market, I mean, for New Zealand government bonds, I mean, how liquid is that? You know, what sort of turnover do you, do you see there? And, and can and do retail investors participate? Well, retail definitely can. And you can buy that through your um, advisors and, and they're listed on the exchange. So that, that can be done. And that's a fairly commonplace thing around the world that uh, investors do that. Obviously, there's tax considerations for everyone, and that's not my role to give advice on that. Um, in terms of liquidity, look, you'll hear people complain that liquidity can be poor on some days when everyone's one way on a market or one way this way, one way that way. But broadly speaking, liquidity is good. And it's, uh, you know, it, it, when, when New Zealand was added to the WIGBY, the World Government Bond Index, Liquidity was part of the components that justify you being part of that. Now, it's not always perfect, but it's not always perfect in every market. But you can obviously get deals done. And uh, in terms of turnover, there are data that's published by the RBNZ, and that's done on a weekly basis, and that's on their, uh, on their website. And you're looking at a few billion dollars per week in turnover. So it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's not the US Treasury market or Japan, but, you know, it's not the size of them either. No, it's yep. clearly a market where investors can be involved. Yep. Okay. Um, now, obviously, um, this year, as, as I've mentioned already, is an election year. So uh, I anticipate there'll be quite a lot of talk among politicians here about government debt, especially because we did see a big increase through 2020-2021. You know, we have a 30-year government bond now, which we didn't have prior to COVID. Yeah. But you, you mentioned too that we have a low net debt to GDP ratio and we, we do have a ceiling of, of 30% um, for that in, in New Zealand. So I'm just wondering what your um, kind of overall view is in terms of where... New Zealand government debt is sitting? Well, I th certainly think it's sustainable. And I think that there's an argument that has perpetuated politics and markets for the best part of 40 years. And uh, it really came from comments that Margaret Thatcher made. And that was around the idea that a household who borrows too much money and can't pay it back is obviously in strife. Now that's true of a household. We don't have the power of taxation of a household, which we did. But at a government level you do, and you have choices you make, choices with how you spend your budget, but obviously there are pressures that come from things like three waters, come from things like a, a, a cyclone that damages Hawke's Bay and suddenly you've got a big payout to do. 
So do you then cut back money for other areas? Uh, I don't always agree with that view. Um, I do think that there is a middle path to find, but it is something that when politicians, not rightly or wrongly, but they just do mention this idea of unsustainable debt, New Zealand is not in that situation. You know, the ability to raise money each week is done because of the credibility and permanency of people like the NZDM and the RBNZ and governments of either stripe. Uh, so that doesn't worry me. The market will always find a buyer. And I think beyond that, you'll get into the nuances of arguments around what money should be spent on you know, that's, that's not a decision for us to make. That's, that is what politicians are elected for. Sure. Um, just, just, I mean, a broader question, and, and I mean, I'm, I'm not, this isn't particularly targeted at, at New Zealand or, or, or Australia, but just in general, I mean, curious, I mean, how do countries get into trouble um, with their sovereign debt? Um, I mean, obviously, a, a very interesting uh, um, and fairly tragic example it has been Argentina over the years, and I, I listened to a very interesting interview uh, Bloomberg did with a guy called Jay Newman um, last year, who was a, you're probably well aware of him, a former hedge fund portfolio portfolio manager for Elliott Management, who mm -hmm. led a 15 year battle um, to recover defaulted debt from Argentina. So, I mean, what do what do governments have to do to get into trouble? Typically, it's borrow in a foreign currency. So the the benefit of countries like Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Japan, is we borrow in our own currency. So we pay it back in our own currency and you can always print more of that currency. Now the purists would recoil at that comment and I understand why, because it can be inflationary. But, you know, if you need to solve it that way, you can. You've also, as we in both Australia and New Zealand have found in the last couple of years, you can get your central bank to buy debt. I would not say that is the way you do things. Having a fiscal program that is credible over the medium to long term is probably your best starting point. Where countries like Argentina, some African countries, even some Asian countries going back 25 years to the Asian crisis went wrong, was they borrowed in foreign currencies. And as their currency fell, their liabilities in those foreign currencies to the bondholders or the, the lenders of that money, because that's what a bond is, uh, they needed to be paid back and the cost of that money rose. So as long as we keep borrowing our own currency, and even if you don't, you have that all hedged back. Uh, so you're not, you're not actually running a foreign exchange risk, but that's really where they've gone out of control. I suppose another way of looking at it is when you get to a borrowing level that is so stupendously large, the interest bills become all consuming. But many people have pointed to Japan, who has a debt of 247% of GDP, and yet their 10 year yield hovers somewhere, because of yield curve control, somewhere between 30 and 50 basis points or half a percent. Now, uh, that's been the case. The more debt you have, 
it's actually likely that you get lower interest rates as a result. But they've not run into trouble with all their, I think it's a quadrillion of debt that they have. It's quite an amazing story, Japan, that's for sure. And I would note your point about borrowing countries borrowing in their own currencies. The New Zealand debt management, almost all of its borrowing is yeah. done in New Zealand dollar denominated debt. Um, well, look, Martin, um, that's probably a good point at which to wrap this up. Really appreciate your, your time. That's Martin Wetton. He's a Sydney-based interest rate strategist. And I'm Gareth Ford at interest.co.nz with another episode of our Of Interest podcast.